will look back briefly on some of the top stories of 2020, but we will start with a reflection on Christmas Day on this week's Corey Truax Show. Angels we have heard on high, sweetly singing o'er the plains, and the mountains in reply, echoing their joyous strains. season from all of us here at his radio talk 91.9 and 92.9 and for everyone listening to the podcast well merry christmas and happy advent season from me this is the episode that will come out most close to christmas come out live just a couple days before and if you are listening live on saturday morning a i'm surprised because it's christmas weekend but b thank you it would be the day after christmas and so i certainly want to start there i I got to give you some internal struggle for me. Let's go with five or six episodes leading up to the election. My podcast numbers were bonkers. I don't know about the radio numbers. I can't find those. I have no idea. But I know the, the podcast numbers were higher than they've ever been. And since the election was over, a lot of people left us, guys. Those of you who are still around, folks just tuned on out. And that's okay. Now, granted, that makes me say, well, I better talk about politics more. That better be my thing in elections. But I am most joyous doing the show when I talk about the stuff that's intriguing to me. And more often than not, things that are intriguing to me are things we did last week. They're more theological and cultural in nature, and we will continue on that. There's several other stories I want to get to that are just part of the news, uh, but it's also near the end of the year. And I am an introspective and let's go retrospective. I'm a retrospective guy. I always like to look back, and so we will look back over the year just a little, not not something that is uh, going to take the entire show, at least I hope not. And we'll do that in a way that, again, is of deeper thinking, not just, hey, remember what happened to Kobe Bryant? That was something. And then we just move on, but a, a more deeply meaningful look back. Uh, let's start here, though. Uh, you're listening to The Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. Thank you for doing so. I also get to serve as the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood meets at 1030 on Sunday mornings in Greenville. And if you're in the area without a church home, you are invited. We would be glad to have you. The Advent series is coming to a close. And so then we get to restart what was a ton of fun, our series in the book of Revelation. And so our pastor, our lead pastor, Doug, will get back on that. All right, let's get to work. If you are in the day after Christmas, I think I have something that will resonate with you. If you are leading up to Christmas, maybe I can help prepare you with a little bit of a Christmas reflection. I got to preach Sunday about, uh, let's go with the text, from the text of Luke chapter 2, which is the Christmas story that even gets read on Charlie Brown, and we got to really explore it and use our sanctified imaginations and Think about what it would be like. And sometimes I can read a room. I can read what was particularly affecting to people. And I want to share with you two parts of Luke 2 that I thought that it was particularly affecting. Number one, there is something about biblical reading that if you do it too quickly, you have trouble getting the depth and the meaning and the power thereof. I know that I can do that. Just read the text to read it and not stop imagine, put myself in it. I think one of the illustrations I like is to smell the text, not literally try to smell your page or 
put your nose on your phone or your iPad and like smell it, but be so present in the scene that's being read about that you can smell the smells of the scene that you're reading. And so you have this story of Mary and Joseph, teenage girl, her betrothed, long trip to to Bethlehem, and it, the Bible just says, and while they were while they were there, uh, the time came for her to uh, for her to be delivered, and uh, she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger. Just says it, and you don't get the visceral reality. This is a teenage girl. She might have seen some births. She's never had one. I know that if I'm Joseph there, I just stand there terrified. I'm not helpful. And it's a it's one of the most harrowing experiences for any woman. Having a child can it can be hard. I imagine. And then it just says this after this harrowing experience, they just they just wrapped him in swaddling clothes and put him in a manger. Now we just got a baby. Got a baby on the scene. But when you really think about what just happened, you allow yourself to stop. Don't read on. Go ahead and dwell on it. Man, what a powerful scene in just the presence of that baby. That we learn from Paul later that when he was talking about Jesus, that Jesus is the form of God. So the God who made everything, the form of him, is Jesus, that this Jesus didn't count equality with God something to be grasped. Instead of having equality with God, Jesus emptied himself and took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That's what Paul says in Philippians. Colossians 2 blows my mind. He says of Jesus that he is the whole fullness of deity. So the fullness of the Godhead the spirit that hovered over the face of the waters at the beginning of time, the voice of God who spoke worlds into existence, dipped out the Pacific Ocean, carved the Grand Canyon, adorned the earth with the coral reef, spoke galaxies into existence, the black holes we have never even discovered he controls. That Godhead, the majesty of God on high, is now a few pounds? the soft skin of a baby boy being held by a teenage girl on the backside of an empire? All the power of God in a baby. You know, we have a very visceral, physical story of Christianity. A very historical story. That's why Luke begins his narrative to his, his primary audience. is a guy named Theophilus, the guy who paid for him to go write this history. And Luke starts it with, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. This, ha- this taxing was the second of them, or all the world should be registered. And it happened when Quirinius was governor of Syria. It's all these facts to tell you, oh, this is real. This is a historical document I'm reading, but it isn't just real and physical. When you stop to think about what happened, it is cosmic. God in the flesh. Then there was a second... Realization. So that's that's one. First reflection on Christmas. What we're celebrating is so incredible. It should blow us away. It really it should barely fit in our minds. But second, maybe you're experiencing this if it is the day after Christmas, if you are listening live on his radio talk. This happens to me every year where I really enjoyed Christmas. 
I got up early. I went over to my nephew's house, watched them open their gifts. I spent some good time with my incredible family. I ate a meal together. Usually there's at least a football game on, at least one, and I got to watch it. And today's just so full, and it's so merry and bright, as we might sing. But there is a moment near the end of the day as everything winds down, and I sit down on my couch to maybe watch some more football or watch an episode of something before I go to bed with two dogs, two overweight dogs in my lap, and I think, huh, that was it. I thought about it for 364 years, 364 days, sort of, like anticipated Christmas, and it was great. It was awesome. And now it's over. I got to wait another one. And maybe that is it for you, like you're the day after, or you're about to feel this way. And I guess that was it. This is all Christmas was or is. Well, what we talked about in that sermon was there are things where we try to find joy or meaning. You can put hope in here. You can use a lot of different words. And what what we find is on, on a lot of things the world offers, uh, one of the examples we gave was the, the four core idols of the human heart that we're all looking for at least one of these, if not more. We're looking for approval, we're looking for power or control, looking for influence, and then looking for comfort. One of these three things. All the decisions we make, especially the ungodly decisions we make, we're looking for the, one of those three things. Approval, control, influence, or comfort. I always forget comfort, I feel like, because it's the last one of those for me. Because mine is approval. Like if I will, I will even, I will sacrifice comfort if it means I can be approved of, sacrifice comfort, if I can have some more control, like comfort's not a thing for me. So I always forget about that, but I know it, it would be for a lot of you, a lot of you. And, but when we have those things, uh, we, we can, if we have any of them, and we put any pressure on them, they fall over or they collapse. The joy, the hope, the meaning found in approval, comfort, influence, control, they collapse in on themselves if we put any pressure on them at all. But then there is the, the one place to actually find meaning, hope, joy, that does not collapse when you put pressure on it. And we learned that from what the angel said to the shepherds. The she- excuse me, the angels said to the shepherds on, the, on that hillside in Bethlehem when they said, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill towards, uh, toward men. It's very important what was the highest there. It was glory to God is in the highest. The mistake that we make is we put other things as highest. Glory to our comforts in the highest. Glory to our approval from others. Glory to the control we have over our own lives. Glory to the influence we have over the world around us. Glory in those things in the highest. And when we have them highest and we count on them for joy, glory, or for meaning, they collapse in on themselves. But if we will live lives that are having God at the highest, he can, he can handle it. He won't collapse in. We can put our meaning there, our joy there, and it won't be too heavy for him. It's, it's that, that question for Christmas when you, you finish it up and you ask, was that it? This is all we had. This was Christmas. Well, on this earth, the answer is yes. You put some pressure on Christmas to bring some joy and to bring some meaning, and it did. It, for, it brought some, but you put some pressure on it, and it's not quite going to be lasting. But there's good news. 
Christ has come. Hope is here. Joy is here. And we can place our meaning, our hope, our joy on him, and it will not collapse. Merry Christmas from all of us here at His Radio Talk and from the Corey Truax Show, the podcast and the radio show. So thankful for you this year and the time you have listened. When we come back, I want to talk about a little bit of the things that have happened this year. I'd like to just get into some of the deeper meaning of some of the headlines and stories I saw this week. We'll get started on it when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show. Broadcasting executive decision over the break. I will tell you about it in just a moment. First, my name is Corey Truax. Thank you for listening to the Corey Truax Show on WHRT, his radio talk, 91.9, 92.9, and also wherever you find podcasts. Here is my thinking. I was about to do a little bit of year in review, but I will save it, I think, for next week. Save that uh, for the show closest to actually New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. So unless I just need some filler... <laughs> At the end of the show, uh, let's let's save that for next week. So I teased that for you, uh, but let's let that tease continue on for a week, and we'll do a little year in review uh, next week. And also, my year in review, by the way, it's going to be much different than everyone else's, because I think everyone else's year in review is COVID, also COVID, and then there's also COVID, COVID nineteen, like all the ways you can different different ways you can say it. That's all people are going to talk about. We're going to do something a little differently despite the fact that, of course, COVID-19 was the most significant thing that happened to any of us this year, probably. All right, so the other thing I wanted to do is we are turning the page on a year, and so there's another personal thought. I know this isn't politics and news, but let's talk about us and how we process the, the changing of the calendar. I think it's a really important time every year that we take a second and stop. We have a culture that never stops. We are constantly going or even pressured. Like if you do stop and take a rest, it's almost like you did something wrong in this culture. But no, we're, we're good. We need to take some time and think. Think about where your career life was at this time last year. Your parenting, your marriage, your financial life. It's important. There, I, I quote this to you every year. At least, at least twice, and around this time every year. I'll quote to you from Psalm 90. I think it's the only Psalm Moses wrote. Moses says, teach us to number our days. Teach us to measure our time. And that's something we should be doing. Let's measure how we're doing over time with what the Lord has entrusted to us. And so, here is the thought I want to give you as you evaluate the, where you are and what matters. I know when I started doing that, I overestimated my own significance. And I know a lot of you went, no, you, you would never. But here's what I mean. I saw, I promise, I'm, I'm, trust me, I'm coming, everything's coming back together. I know this feels disjointed for now, but it, it's coming together. I saw that really cool story that on December 21st, I guess if you're listening to this now, it's already passed, that Jupiter and Saturn, I think those are the two of them, are going, to, are going to come together on one of the darkest nights of the, of the year, or at least it's going to be dark for longer, and they're going to have this incredibly bright display. And because we're able to track uh, the, the motions of the heavens uh, in outer space, we know that the last time this happened, that it would be visible to Earth in this way, the last time it happened was in year 1226. And here is the thought I had regarding that 
in relation to myself, and maybe this will help you in some way. How insignificant am I? I mean, the whole world is out there spinning, and none of it's for me. The Saturn and Jupiter just keep spinning around, doing what they're supposed to, coming back into alignment 800 years apart, and doing it because the Lord set up the system that way. They are spinning and through their orbit for the glory of the Lord. I, th- I thought about a song we sang Sunday uh, from Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee, where there's a, a portion of the second verse where it goes, uh, how's that go? Uh, uh, center of a broken, oh, that's it. Field and forest, vale and mountain, flowery meadow, flashing sea, chanting bird and flowing fountain, call us to rejoice in thee. And so I, I think about that. I think about, so there's Jupiter and Saturn out there doing their thing, and then I'm singing at church on Sunday. Here is, somewhere out on the planet right now, there are veils and mountains that I, I have not seen and really no, maybe no human will ever really explore. There is some beautiful flowery meadow somewhere right now, being beautiful for the sake of it, some flashing sea being dramatic that no human will ever see, some bird singing a song. Why? The glory of the Lord. Just because he likes it. He likes the sound of that bird song. He likes the roar of that ocean and the beauty of that meadow. And when I start evaluating my own year, my own life, I, I tend to be that guy that puts a lot of pressure on myself. What kind of progress did you make? How many more listeners did you get to the podcast? Are any more people at Beachwood Church? What kind of impact did you have on your nephews? Are, financially, are you, did you meet whatever goal you wanted to meet? Uh, professionally, did you make any kind of progress? I, I put that kind of pressure on myself. Maybe you do. And then I stop and go, wait, hold on. I'm just one of any billion number of things the Lord created for his own glory, for his own pleasure. And then asking myself the better questions. Do you love Jesus more than you did at the beginning of the year? Was there sin in you at the beginning that has become more obvious to you that you can repent of? It's easier to repent of, any of that? Asking the better questions, the more important questions. And that's what I would challenge you with. Yes, all those other things I just said are important. Measuring our lives by some temporal things. But let's not forget that there's an entire world out there glorifying God. And that's what you're here to do too. And that's an important piece of evaluation for us as well. All right, so I've done more than half the show now, or about half the show on a lot of spiritual stuff. Uh, And all things, all of life is of a spiritual nature. All of life is affected by biblical things. And I'll try to connect all of what we're about to do next to that. So here we go. Some other stories I've seen in the last, let's go 10 to 14 days, that in some ways either intrigued me, annoyed me, and maybe we can get to a deeper, a deeper message for it. Okay, here we go. This is the risk. Because I could do the year review, but here we go. Um, Pete Buttigieg, that guy. Mayor of South Bend, ran for president, was not very successful, has just been named the uh, nominee for Joe Biden's Secretary of the of Transportation. Um, not a significant, like it's, who, who cares who the Transportation Secretary is? It's not a significant job. I, I just got annoyed at something. I'm going to share it with you now. He was nominated for Transportation Secretary. And so there was, of course, the question, well, what, what qualifications does Pete Buttigieg have? And the answer is none, really. I mean, 
it, uh, granted, most transportation secretaries don't. Because what what qualification would you have? The only qualification is can you manage? Can you manage a a, a much too large organization? Here's what annoyed me. When that question comes out, he, he very literally says, I've always had a love for transportation, which is a really controversial position. I love transportation. Okay, what's, what's that mean? And then second, it was, because uh, he, he he's a homosexual man, he, he proposed to his husband in an airport. These are the qualifications. Now, does, that doesn't annoy me because they're just stupid answers and he's obviously unqualified. What annoys me is that there was no comedy around it. It just is, This is a point about media bias, by the way. It's very real, this media bias. Because, let me tell you this, if some conservative person or some Republican would have been nominated for a position and, there's, and what they said was, well, I just really love it and also I proposed to my spouse in a way that is somewhat tangentially connected. Like someone says, uh, we're going to nominate this person for, uh, nominate this person for Secretary of Agriculture. What, co- what qualifications do they have? Well, I like various breads. Also, I once did a photo shoot in a cornfield. So I'm very qualified regarding agriculture. And there would, there would be jokes. There'd be Saturday Night Live skits. There would be memes about it. The, the culture at large, because the culture is dominated by secularism and leftism, there would have been mockery. There would have been scorn. It would have been funny. And it was largely ignored, this thing that he said, except by conservative media. Conservative media didn't ignore it. And so uh, I, I kind of want to get to this for this deeper reason. So there's Pete Buttigieg, he's the person, there's the story that he said a dumb thing, it's kind of funny, and we can make fun of it. Deeper meaning, what's, what's the idea underneath it? As we transition out of one administration to the other, there's going to be this, there's going to be this weird feeling for some people. And it's, it's a feeling regarding the media. Donald Trump, as president and as a candidate, was primarily set up not as a opposition to the left or a foil to leftism he was in opposition to the media now granted media is leftist and so those two things are sort of one and the same so here's what I'm, tr- I'm trying to get to the sh- the bias of media pre-existed donald trump and it will post-exist donald trump conservatives criticizing it railing against it calling it out as a problem, pre-existed the Trump, administ- uh, Trump administration and will exist after it. And so I think it's just important that we recognize that, uh, that Donald Trump didn't start this fight. He was way late to it, way late to media bias. We, we have been dealing with it for a long time. We've been dealing with it since Walter Cronkite, guys. This is a decades and decades and decades long issue. Um, it is because, it comes from here, leftism dominates the cultural institutions so because leftism dom- dominates universities, education system, therefore the people who want to be journalists have to come up through an education system that tries to make them secular leftists and then a college system that will turn them into secular leftists if they aren't already one. So conservatives have been fighting that bi- battle for a long time and it will just continue now. And the Pete Buttigieg story is a good reminder, hey, that we're back there again. All right, so we've got... 
we have a media generally at large just covering for leftism, covering for secularism, not talking about the ways in which that it comes up short for people and harms people. And we can just pay, pay attention to it. Again, the Pete Buttigieg story is just a funny version of it. Next one that was interesting to me and has some deeper meaning. There's a site now. I wonder if I should even give you the name of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to leave it out. There is a site uh, that allows young ladies to monetize their sexual appeal. I'm trying to be really delicate in how I say this. Let me give you the story of how it ultimately works. Let's say a young lady on Instagram, TikTok, is getting some attention. She's getting some following. Maybe it's because she actually is funny and has some kind of talent. Uh, Usually that's not why. Usually the reason young ladies get a lot of attention on these social media sites is because they are of a physical appeal and they're willing to maximize their physical appeal through being scantily clad. And my euphemisms on this thus far, pretty strong. I'm going to go ahead and say it. I'm euphemizing, euphemizing the, the heck out of this thing. And if I can't say heck on WHRT, sorry, you just edit that out. So uh, what, what some enterprising person found... This is the ugly part of capitalism. Found that they should give a platform to these girls so that they can actually get subscribers, as in paying monthly, to get content that is even more risque, more revealing. So ultimately, it ends up being like a TikTok and an Instagram are a gateway drug into getting people, mostly men, probably almost exclusively men, to go pay girls in their... I God in heaven, I hope it's at least late teens to 20s, to their 20s, to see additional images of them and pay them. So they have found a way to make pornography, I'm going to call it what it is, to turn pornography into something any given woman out there in her late teens and her 20s can go get paid for to monetize it. So that's what the site does. I'm not going to give you the name of it because none of us should be getting, it should not be getting a dime from any of us. There was a story in the Washington Post, I am incorrect, the New York Post, that decided to do a story about this, about this phenomenon of normal women, just normal, average, everyday women, just that have a particular physical appeal, using this site to go make some extra money. They decided to, without her permission focus on a 23-year-old paramedic in New York City. This 23-year-old paramedic has been working through some of the worst parts of COVID, right? That's New York City, got hit really hard. And as, as she's trying, trying to make, make rent and pay her bills, she decides one way to do that is to take images of herself, upload them to this site, and let men pay her to see them. So they do the profile on her. Now, after that, there's a big backlash the, that the New York Post would ex- expose her um, and, what, and, what she was, and what she's doing. Those are the facts of the case. We have a website allowing women to monetize their sexuality. And one of them was exposed. It offended a bunch of people. It started a big conversation on Twitter about the concept of, quote, sex work, end quote, as if sexuality is an industry. Now, I say as if. It is an industry. 
and it should not be. Here's the deeper, the deeper meaning. So we got the New York City paramedic, we have the website, we have the news. Now, what's happening underneath? Number one. Number one is a question. What on earth could lead us here? What on earth could lead us not to women having to go get involved in some kind of actual industry, find find a studio, like, like the, the pornography industry, and literally turn pornography into something that any woman with a phone, I guess technically any man with a phone, could do securely, safely, quote, safely, and get paid for it. I think at least two things have to happen that get us here. Number one is the degradation of women and women's sexuality. This secular culture that seems to want to empower women has degraded them. The way that women are talked about in a lot of music, the way women are depicted in a lot of movies, magazines, shows, are as objects, not as human souls. And what's going to be the consequence of that? When we decide that sexuality and the act itself is utterly meaningless, completely casual, with no eternal effect. Well, in that case, if that gets, if that is a cultural determination that a woman internalizes, my sexuality is not special, nothing about it is significant, and therefore it becomes a product. I, I own these clothes that I, I bought over the years. I could resell those on Facebook. I have these, these shoes I can resell. I have these crafts that I made. I also just have me. I just have my own body. Was it any, was it any different? And that ends up being the logic of it. And, well, of course, when we have a secular culture that dehumanizes women... There's going to be a great deal of young women who grow up in the milieu of that culture and don't value themselves enough that, to just go ahead and literally sell themselves. Number two way this happens is the demasculating of men. Having so much sexual content available to men at, from what I'm seeing from the New York Post story, unbelievably affordable prices. This is a demasculating thing. As we continue to try to take masculinity out of men, one of the one of the consequences of that is taking comfort and ease. There is some kind of instinct inside of a man for something he wants, and so man, if I can just pay this and go get it, why better myself? Why go out and tackle life by the horns? Why become a man worthy of a woman and her affection? We degrade femininity, turn femininity into a product to consume. We degrade masculinity so that the things that they want, they don't have to work, any, they don't have to work hard for. You're, gonna, you're going to get this as a consequence. So then how do we respond to it? Do we just get angry, yell about it? I don't think so. We can respond with some Christian thought. For example, we can speak loudly into the culture that people are not their sex appeal. That is not the centerpiece of humanity. And we have a culture that kind of speaks that loudly. Like we actually talk about it as an identity, sexual identity. You, that, you're not that though. You're, that, that's your identity? 
Your sexual attraction? That's your identity? How people see you? That's your identity? No, it's got to be more than that, right? And so we speak that type of life into the world around us. You are not your sex appeal. We can also do that parents, as parents, with daughters, when, when age appropriate, speaking that into them. That this is not who you are. You are not the images of you. You are not who finds you appealing physically. You are more than that. Made in the image of God. This is who you are. Speaking that life into our daughters. Speaking that word of truth to our sons. Son, masculinity, manhood, it is in part about that Genesis mandate. Go subdue the earth. That might not mean working a a field for you. That might mean something altogether different. But go subdue it. Go grab life. Make one for yourself. And in doing so, you'll, you'll be so rare, you will earn the affection. Not purchase the fake affection. You will earn the affection of a woman. And there's a great deal more satisfaction in that because it is the, the Lord's method. And then final word on that for parents. Be really careful with your internet connection, guys. It's not just the browser histories anymore. These TikTok stars, these Instagram stars, taking you right over to this other site. There's some gateways there to be really mindful of as a parent. And that is what I would encourage you towards. When we come back, I have something that Barack Obama said on an interview that I want to address. And there was a story about Lizzo. She's a pop singer. She got in trouble. And I want to tell you why and how absurd it is. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Core Act Show. Those of you that have been listening to me for a long time, what I'm about to start with is not going to surprise you. Here's where I start. Hey, Barack Obama said something that really annoyed me that I want to tell you about. I'll get, you, I'll get there in a second. You know, that's uh, when my show was doing the best, was we were still near the end of the Barack Obama administration before the Trump stuff started. And so many more people loved me then. Kyle was awesome uh, because I had my ire turned in a direction that they all loved. And I was good at it. I'm a good irer. That's not a word, by the way. All right. So here is uh, facts of the case, and we'll get to the deeper meanings underneath. Uh, Barack Obama's got a book out, uh, as, as I would expect from him. Uh, in his, what, six, less than 60-year life, he's able to produce like 800 pages about himself uh, because the only person more self-obsessed than Barack Obama is me. You know, I don't even know if I could produce that much content about me, but I don't know. Uh, if I had to put some effort into it, maybe I could get, I could get there. So I, I want to play for you something he said on Trevor Noah. So he went on Trevor Noah to promote his book. They start talking about some political matters because Barack Obama was obviously once president of the United States. Uh, and let me put this in a category. I talked about secession last week and this, this idea of uh, unity versus division and whether or not we can be a unified people. You know, I, I've got folks on the left talking the language of unity, but then Barack Obama is going to say what he does here, and you wonder, well, then how? What are we unifying around? How is this possible? And that's where we'll be headed uh, in this discussion. So here is uh, former President Barack Obama on Trevor Noah. The Republican Party is the minority party in this country. The only reason that it doesn't look like they're the minority party is because of structures like the U.S. Senate, 
uh, and the Electoral College that don't render them the majority party. So, so they have certain built-in advantages around power, given their population distribution and how uh, our government works. But the truth of the matter is, is that 60% of the people are, are occupying what I would consider a more reality-based uh, universe. Yeah, that's helpful. That whole unity thing. It's super helpful to say that the people who disagree with you aren't living in reality. So not that you have different opinions or different backgrounds and how you see things. One of them is not living by the, uh, the, the, the actual confines of that which is true and that which is false. Several things there got on my nerves. Number one, and he's t- talking about how the major- the Republican Party, which I don't, I'm not a huge fan of, it just happens to be the better of the two, and it's not close. I actually should make that clear. There's not a, there isn't a, a question about which of the two is better or worse. Uh, Republicans have a ton of problems, but the Democratic Party largely is is a purveyor of the of the evil ideas that wreck people's lives, wreck people or, or, and wreck cultures, uh, and also specifically hates the church, hates Christianity. Uh, they th- this is this is who that party is. Both parties are terrible. The Republican Party is the the better of the two, and it's not even close. But this idea that they are the minority party, well, uh, and also by the way, hear me say they, not we, because I'm not one of them. Are they the minority party? They might be the lesser of the two plurality parties. There is no majority party. It doesn't exist. But the Republican Party might be the smaller of the two uh, plurality parties. But I'm not sure of that for this reason. He's talking about presidential elections. Barack Obama is. And yeah, in this office that we have put too much power into, put too much meaning into, and everyone shows up for it, yeah, Republicans tend not to win those votes. Very comfortable with that reality. You start looking around the state legislatures. Republicans run a lot of those. He talks about the structure of the the Senate. I'm going to get to that second. As if that's a bad thing that Montana gets two votes at the same time California gets two votes. But you don't even need to to make... uh, You can respond to that argument just by looking at state legislatures. The Republican Party is, is healthy. It's fine. Democratic Party is healthy and fine, too, when it comes to just general success. The idea that the Republican Party is this tiny little minority does not comport itself to reality, that last thing he said. Then, number two, this is that issue of unity. He, he, He bemoans the fact that this is how our government works, that some group could have... Uh, could have some power despite not being 50% plus one of the population. This is the point of our system. The point of our system is that nothing can really happen. No one can really do anything of, uh, of real consequence unless there's really broad support for it. If there's not really broad support, you can't do things to people. That's how the, the system works, and it has protected us. It's been good for us. But he bemoans that because in leftism, Everything is about power. It's about control. It's about making people do the stuff you want. And so we have a system that doesn't allow that. Our system doesn't allow people to control other people. And, of course, folks on the left will think that's a very, very bad thing. And the final part there, uh, I should should elaborate. And so what do you do for unity in a situation where someone says, the thing we want is to be able to take the reins of power and make you do what we want. 
and even rails against the system that has brought about so much prosperity, rails against the system that's brought about so much stability over 240 years. And when other, another side says, like me, I mean, the system's been good. The system of governance has been so uh, stabilizing. We should keep that. We shouldn't denigrate it. And the other side says, no, let's throw it out. Well, how do you, how do you actually come to any kind of unity on that? That's going to be quite difficult. And the final thing on the Obama audio there. When he says that thing about reality-based, one is living in reality, the other one isn't. Of course, that's insulting. You know, being in broadcasting as I am, even though only small, I get I get those messages from people. I get those writings from people that are just insulting, and they they act like <laughs> they act like they know so much more than I do. Uh, they, they come from that perspective, and I'm I'm always just blown away by the attitude of speaking, for example, speaking down to me or speaking down to others. That's what Obama did there, speaking down to somebody. By the way, the, some of the messages I get that are denigrating and speaking down to me, I'd love to sit down with a lot of those people and let's just take an SAT. Let's take an ACT. How about we take any kind of aptitude test in American history? How about we get quiz on the Constitution? Let's see who knows more. Let's just, I, I'm, I'm going to take a bet on myself for a lot of these. And I know that sounds arrogant because it is, but I just a statement. As some of you don't know some of the contact I do get from people, that's how I often want to respond. In any event, this idea of reality-based. Yeah, I, I would say that of the left in some ways, like men can be women, men have uteruses. Well, or uteri? I don't know what the uh, plural of that is. Nevertheless, I am, I'm willing to say, yeah, in some ways you're not living in reality. But... I am more willing to say, no, I just, I think your values are wrong. I think you're not, I think you've not, uh, you've not seen the data that contradicts the thing you're saying. Not that you're not living in reality. And so when one side actually does look down on the, uh, the other side, how does that come to unity? How, I don't even know how to start there. When one side actually looks at the other and says, you little children, you idiotic little children who just don't know enough. If that's the starting point, I don't know how to get anywhere else. Okay, uh, two more stories that have either interested me or annoyed me over the last couple weeks. There is a pop star named Lizzo. I know that she had a song that was really big. uh, I can't remember the name of it, but she asks a really profound question. uh, Why men great till they gotta be great? That's the profound poetry of Lizzo. She's, anyway, she's a big pop star. She's a, oh, how do I say this? She is in part known for being one of the body positivity figures, so being okay with how you are physically, uh, for uh, women who are over, well, well, well overweight. So that's the kind of that's who she is. That's what, it's not who she is. I shouldn't say it that way. That is her physical features. And there's a lot of pride around it. A lot of pride about that being her physical, her, her physical being. And uh, often in that state, not wearing a lot. So like really showing off a lot of her because there is a lot of her. I'm trying to be really careful here and how I say all this. I don't want to offend anybody. Okay. So here's what that woman did. This woman who's known for being big and, and proud about it, went on one of the social media sites, TikTok or Instagram, I can't remember which one, 
and just said she was doing a 10-day smoothie detox. The world fell apart. A, a large woman who decided to take a, to do some smoothies instead of eating Oreos said she was going to do a 10-day detox. And there, believe it or not, there was some really angry people about it. For example, one person, Stephanie Yaboa, who is a, get this, a body positivity author. That exists. There's a, there are body positivity authors. Uh, she said that Lizzo shamefully succumbed to fat phobia because everything is a phobia. A while back, I tried to t- uh, coin the term Christophobia, so people who hate Christians. Um, here's what this body positivity author, Stephanie Yaboa, said. Um, she said, Lizzo... Girl, why? It's a really good sentence. Lizzo, girl, why? Then she says this. It was inevitable. The, the industry, I guess that means the entertainment industry, is so violent towards fat women. Okay. This is a, another part of leftism. doesn't make any sense. Uh, they say silence is violence. So saying nothing is violence. And then they also say words are violence. That's hard. Saying nothing and saying things are all violence. I remember back when there was a definition of the word violence that had to do with stuff that's super physical. Nevertheless, she says, uh, the industry is so violent towards women. She doesn't mean physically violent. Uh, Continuing with the quote, uh, she said, of course she was going to submit to toxic diet culture. It was only a matter of time. Lizzo doesn't owe us anything, and she's absolutely free to do whatever she wants. I think the disappointment lies in a lot of us seeing ourselves in a woman who was so proud and confident in her body and made us want to do the same to ours. Okay, so this woman is mad because Lizzo take, going on a diet is in some way uh, delegitimizes her as a woman. Uh, back to that quote, she says, the body Lizzo exists in has opened her up to a lot of fat phobia, a lot of abuse, a lot of harassment and online bullying. I can understand how this can get to someone and why they decide to change their body to be seen as more acceptable. She says, I have empathy for those who succumb to the pressures of fat phobia, especially when you are in the public eye, especially when you exist within several intersections uh, that carry very little privilege. Gosh, wow. Uh, This person seems like they'd be really fun to be around at a party. Uh, Another person, uh, Leah Hutch, tweeted, my heart hurts with all of my fat peers today. Oh, man. So it's it's a community group now, fat peers Okay. Leah continues, even though she won't say it and will probably try to excuse it, I'm sorry that Lizzo, I'm sorry that Lizzo did that to us. Remember that is posting a picture and saying, I'm going on a 10-day detox with like some smoothies and stuff. I'm sorry she did that to us. She's a celebrity. She didn't do anything to you. She did something to her. What are you talking about? Continuing with Leah's quote, she says, we are worthy, and what she posted was so expletive. If you are triggered and upset by it, I am right there with you. Hold on. You are triggered and upset because a woman you don't know decided to lose some weight through a detox That affected you deeply and personally. Man, there's so much here. 
I think number one is the issue we have with celebrity culture. There are actually adults on planet Earth defining some part of themselves by what a celebrity does or does not do. They feel affirmed or deconfirmed. I don't know what the opposite of affirmed is. Uh, they they feel insulted or conf- or affirmed by what a celebrity does that identifies with them in some small way whatsoever. So unhealthy uh, worship of celebrity is one part of that. Additionally, I mean, I've talked about this on the show some. I want to be. I do want to be sensitive around it. Like recognizing, for example, the definition of obese is absurd. Like there, there are really there's very much non-obese, very healthy people who technically fit the category because of the way we come up with that definition in, in the health world. Uh, so I want to not use that word obese scientifically. I mean, I, I would go with the like obviously people like people like Lizzo. She is living a life that is harmful to her, that it's going to hurt her. It's going to hurt differently than other type of, like, I don't know, substance abuse, something like that. But it's harmful. It's a harmful lifestyle. And for there to be some community that says, no, Lizzo, don't try to be healthier. Stay like you are so that I can feel better about myself. It's a level of self-absorbed that not even I can, can really fit in my brain. All Lizzo decided to do was try to make herself healthier. Uh, and so it's just, it's another one of those backward culture things. We're living in a very upside down place where someone might do something better for themselves physically, mentally, and emotionally, but other people, if it feels like it doesn't affirm them and make them feel good about themselves, they'll actually attack it and denigrate it. All right, so that's that's the Lizzo story and thoughts behind it and, and why it annoyed me. I could have gone further there. I just, we're out of time, so we're not going to do it. Next week, we will take a look back on 2020 in a very different perspective than I think all the other look backs and maybe even start looking forward to what we can look forward to in 2021. To the Court Trick Show listeners for the last show of the year, thank you. I am so grateful that you give me time every week. You can support the show at anchor.fm and I hope you will. I'll be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.